And if you would, please stand together, that in doing so we might express our reverence for God's Word visibly. All those beautiful flowers we are told that we see outside, those flowers will fade, the grass as well, but the Word of our God will endure forever. So as a people, God, we strive to hear and heed God's Word faithfully together. This is God's Word in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophet, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who sacrifice, who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Thus far the reading of God's sobering word. Let's pray. We ask, O Lord, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would revive our hearts, that you'd help us to see not only the exceedingly sinfulness of sin, but the exceeding glory of Christ who came into this world, that even such wretched sinners as we ourselves should find forgiveness in him. 
Now we ask that the power of the Spirit would bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, that the Father, the Son, and the Glory Spirit would receive honor and glory in the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. text before us this morning is a difficult one. Perhaps you can see even in the title given to the sermon, it is a sensitive subject. It raises the question of whether or not God actually cares about who we marry. Does God care who we marry? It is a sensitive subject. It comes to us in our text by way of the issue of intermarriage, which, as many of you know, is a pretty personal subject for me and for my family. I am a mixed race. My kids are mixed race. My parents were married in 1960 in Michigan. And the only thing that is ironic about that is that they both grew up and met in Indiana, but they were not legally allowed to marry in the state of Indiana in 1960. So they had to drive across the state line in order to do so. It was not legal for a black man to marry a white woman at that time. Admittedly, one of my great struggles in becoming a Christian, having grown up in the South, in North Carolina, where I lived, and about which I have many fond things to say, but nonetheless, I can remember as a teenager uh, that one of my struggles or perceptions of Christianity was that many of my friends' parents, who I perceived to be churchgoers, were also some of the most prone to use some of the most foul and offensive language regarding black people, often not realizing that I was part black. Finally, even as a pastor, I would admit that this subject, especially in recent years, has been something of a thorn in my side, because if we were honest, we'd have to admit the church has not in history always done well on this subject. We have at times done well, and we have at times completely botched it. Uh, In a class I teach related to this subject, one of the most striking things uh, to read is a 1964 article, it's not that long ago, 1964, by a rather well-known PhD, prominent minister in a sister denomination, arguing for, in 1964, the segregation of the races and arguing against intermarriage and using Ezra 9 to justify it. So this is one that strikes kind of close to home and is troubling. Uh, One of the reasons why I like preaching through books of the Bible and not just picking from here and there is that it forces us to deal with hard questions, like, what does the Bible say about the subject of intermarriage? Does the Bible condemn it? Does the Bible leave us with a portrait of God who is partial to one race or another? And the answer, of course, is no. But we do meet, even in Ezra 9, a God who hates sin, who loves righteousness, and a God who loves his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The most important thing we should wonder is, what does the Bible have to say? Let's look at our text through the lens of the points that you have in our outline and begin considering how appalled Ezra is at Israel's sin. Only a few months now have gone by between Ezra chapter 8 and Ezra chapter 9, to say it differently, since Israel, with Ezra, has returned back to the land. If you remember from last week, we finished off at the end of chapter 8 with Israel having something of a party. Uh, They were celebrating their safe return. But in a certain sense, perhaps they were celebrating a bit too soon. As one writer has well said, it was the best of times 
and it was the worst of times. To quote the rest of that line, it really fits uh, the text today from Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. That pretty much sums up Ezra chapter 9. We're done. (laughs) With the Dickens quote. God had brought his people safely back to Jerusalem, and for this they were giving thanks and offering sacrifice at the end of chapter 8. Ezra 8.22, which becomes a a pivotal text I'll refer to uh, several times in this sermon. Ezra 8.22 had been proven true. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. The good hand of God brought Israel home safe and sound. But since their arrival, Israel has worshipped and celebrated, but something else has begun to happen. Ezra has begun to preach. Preaching has a way of piercing the heart. The word of God has a way of finding its arc around those things that we might otherwise hide. And it even has begun to bear fruit. So at the beginning of chapter 9, it is the officials of the land that come to Ezra to confess and acknowledge the sin of themselves and of the people. Note that the title given for these people, the officials, is a term that would refer not to the people that have just come with Ezra, but rather those that were already in the land. In other words, it's not the newbies that are pointing out the sins of those that have been around. It's the local officials that were complicit in that sin. And what is their confession? The people of Israel have not separated themselves from the people of the land and their abominations, their false worship and rebellion. It is here that we begin to dig into the sensitive subject of intermarriage, And again, wrestle with the question, does the Bible outright condemn it? And the answer is clearly no. You see that, first of all, by way of certain examples, even examples that come before Ezra chapter 9. Who did Joseph marry? An Egyptian woman. Who did Moses marry? A Gentile woman. Even Abraham married a Gentile. That's kind of like cheating because he actually was one when he got married. But what of God's disposition towards the nations? Is God uh, narrowly, and in an ethnic sense, partial to Israel only? Is God only for the Jews? Was God only for the Jews? Even by this time, uh, there are two things that we see that are rather noteworthy. One is that God was separating a people for himself, but the purpose of that separation was unambiguously their spiritual holiness, not their ethnic distinction. Second, by this time, people from all sorts of different nations have constantly been attaching themselves to Israel and were warmly received. God did not draw an ethnic line in the sand, even when Israel came out of Egypt. In fact, uh, there were those who proselytized into Israel, even in the Exodus. And then there are others whose names you know. Rahab, who joined the party. Ruth, who became a lovely Part of the family. And even in the book of Ezra, we've already seen Gentiles who are attaching themselves to the people of God. So then let's not avoid the text or the question, but uh, wrestle perhaps even more. Then, so why these rules and these prohibitions against intermarriage? Well, notice. 
that the list given in verse 1 is identical to lists that you would find back in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy. These are the inhabitants of the land. In fact, what Ezra does here, or what the people do at this early part of the chapter, is reflect not simply on who they are marrying now, but against the backdrop of the prohibition against intermarriage when Israel came out of Egypt and conquered the land. Israel was to remain separate from these peoples after they went through the conquest of the land of Canaan, and you would not be unfair in asking the question, why? Why did God want his people not to intermarry with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the can't sleep at nights, the bug bites, you know, all the other ites that there are? Why did God give such a prohibition not to intermarry? Well, the answer is, is unambiguous. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity in and of itself. It has everything to do with their theology and their religion, what the text calls their abominations. Now, that's an old King Jamesy kind of word, right? Uh, you don't hear the word abomination very often anymore. But it's a way of saying a grotesquely detestable sin in the sight of God. Things that don't just make him a little unhappy, things that make him really unhappy, very angry. And the worship, the religion of the idol of the people of this land uh, was greatly detestable in the sight of God. God did not want Israel to intermarry with them because he knew that if they did so, they would end up being seduced by the religion of the land. And that is the point. Missionary dating is a fool's errand. That's what God was saying to Israel. It never works, and God forbidden. The greatest example comes from the greatest of failures. Solomon, who on the one hand was the wisest man ever recorded in the Bible, except for Jesus. But you ever notice that the wisest man in history became history's biggest fool? And how is it that Solomon the wise became Solomon the fool? Well, we're told in his life story is because he married foreign pagan wives that seduced his heart, and this became his downfall and led him into their pagan practices, and God saw this as an abomination. God commanded his people to remain separate from the ites of the land for the same reason that he commands Christians to marry only in the Lord, to date only in the Lord. And why is that? Because once you give your heart away, your soul will be not long behind. Once you give your heart away, the soul will be not far behind. Israel was given this lovely title. You see it in verse 2, a holy race, a holy people, a beloved, precious, and cherished people. This is a religious term, beloved, not an ethnic one. They weren't holy because they were Jewish. They weren't holy because of anything in them. They were holy because God set his affection upon them. And when he did that, he set them apart like a man does his bride. That's what made Israel holy and beautiful in the sight of God. They were to follow God in all of his ways. They were to walk with God in all of their journeys. They were to be his people and he was to be their God in a virtual wedding like relationship. But here's the point. 
and setting them apart. God makes it very clear, trying to make this crass at all, but he was not interested in a love triangle. He was not interested in sharing the heart of Israel with pagan deities, with foreign gods, with the abominations of the ites of the land. He was not the sort of lover, if you will, who would say, it's fine, go and do whatever you want. It was not an open marriage. It was a rather closed marriage. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. That's how God was to be to Israel, and Israel was to be to God. So when the officials come and acknowledge that they have effectively repeated the same sin that Israel once committed, having been commanded not to do it, Ezra now sits appalled. There again is a word we don't use very often. Strong emotional reaction to sin. Appalled. You ever been appalled at something? A witness to a scene. Uh, so vile, so offensive, that, that you almost don't even know what to say, and every fabric of your being is offended by it. Ezra now is appalled, not because he or God hates the Gentiles, but because God is a hater of sin. And Ezra knows that Israel now has once again not only fallen into great sin, we've been here before. It's a stage reset, and it's rather dramatic. In fact, what Ezra does as he is appalled is rather dramatic. You see it in verse 3. He is literally too upset for words, and is described as speechless. He tears his clothes. The body language a person would often do when finding out that a loved one has perished. We see that several times in the Bible, or at great grief at the actions of another person. But not only does he tear his clothes, this next one worries me a little, he pulls hair from his head and beard. So you, you picture this bearded prophet of a man, so wrenching over the sin of Israel that he doesn't know what to do with himself. And so he, he sits down, he tears his clothes. He, he literally, we use this phrase sometimes about pulling our hair out, but I don't know anybody's ever done it. Ezra did. And he begins pulling out his hair and his beard, painful, deep agony. In the book of Nehemiah, another interesting contrast, uh, there's a moment when Israel is caught up in a, a deep sin, and Nehemiah uh, acts similarly to Ezra, only Nehemiah does not pull his hair and beard, he pulls the hair and beard of others. I can't wait to preach that one. So here Ezra sits, torn clothes on his body, torn hair in his hands, Ezra appalled in the dust. He will not eat. Like a man grieving, here grieving something worse than death. Death is not, in a certain sense, the worst thing that can happen at times. Uh, deep sin arguably is. So for Ezra, the best of times has now become the worst of times. In the evening, he changes his posture. He falls down upon his knees, and he spreads out his hands and begins to pray. This takes us to our second point, Ezra's prayer of confession. Sometimes prayer is pleasant. Sometimes it's painful. This is a painful prayer. Ezra's prayer is deep, it is honest, and it is painful. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, refers to this prayer in chapter 9 as arguably one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible. And what's interesting is that what he calls one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible is arguably one of the most deep and painful 
you should note, this is very significant, something very peculiar about the prayer, is that Ezra's prayer of lament is not for his own sin. Ezra is not guilty of intermarriage. But Ezra's deep and painful lament is a corporate confession of the sins of Israel. In a certain sense, the prophet becomes the pastor. The shift moves from first person in the beginning of his prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, three first persons. Then he switches for the rest of the prayer to this language of our. Ezra identifies himself with the sin, the shame, and the guilt of the people. I am ashamed of our guilt. This word shame, again, from 822, is very important. Because there Ezra was ashamed to ask the king of Persia for an armed escort. Why? Because the good hand of God is for those who seek him, but against those who forsake him. There's a sad irony in these words. God's hand was for Israel, but Ezra knows that God's hand could be against those who have forsaken him. And what has Israel just done? Now, back in the land, they had already forsaken God. He describes it rather poetically. Uh, There's a little bit of Dickens in the pen of Ezra, if you will. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. If you put your hand up, that means you're drowning. We're drowning in our sin and in our guilt. And not only that, not only has it risen higher than our heads, their guilt, our guilt, has has risen like a tower into the heavens. Not simply like smoke wafting up to the nostrils of God in an unpleasant smell rather than a pleasing sacrifice, but almost analogous to something like Babel. We have just stacked our sin higher and higher and higher and higher till it now overshadows us and nothing but darkness abides over us. The rulers are complicit, not simply the people. The kings and priests, as well as the officials, have engaged this. Ezra now reflecting historically and globally, this is not a new sin for Israel. This is not a first-time act. Israel has done this many times. In fact, this is the very reason that they were exiled into captivity in the first place. This is how the exile started. This is Israel's great besetting sin, its constant flirtation with the nations and the religious abominations of the nations. It's why they were in captivity. The Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. Here is Israel licking it up. Just now back in the land, already doing the same things. Ezra points out, but we ought to understand that their exile was a giant metaphor. The wages of sin is what? It is death. It is separation from God. And there they were for all those long years, separated from God, separated from his temple, separated from his blessing. Again, a people returned to captivity just as they were in Egypt. A people plundering have become a people plundered, plundered and brought to shame by the very same nations from which they were to remain separate. Why? Because again, as went their hearts, so went their bodies, and so went their souls into captivity. But Ezra points out, 
But for a brief moment, these were the best of times. There was respite, a moment of hope and light. God had shown them favor and he'd ended their exile. God had shown them grace and returned them to the land. God had left them a living remnant that was able to return and rebuild the temple and to walk in his ways, to live again in the shadow of his holy place and to do those things that were pleasing to him. God had even brightened their eyes. What a beautiful poetic expression. You know that sense when your heart is saddened by something and yet good news from afar refreshes the bones and enlightens the eyes and for a little while the eyes of Israel and Ezra were bright. God had turned their songs of slavery and captivity into songs of joy and freedom. God had sent his servants, the prophets, and how lovely were the feet of those who came and proclaimed good news that their captivity was over, their bondage was ending, and their return to the land of God's favor was imminent. Ezra says it very poignantly in verse 9, we were slaves. We were slaves. But notice how he actually puts it, we are slaves. Still slaves. This is the harsh reality. God's chosen people, yet again, a slave people, but God did not forsake them. In a steadfast love, a love that would not let them go, a love that found them, pitied them, and restored them, that is the same love that brought them back. But do you struggle, beloved, when we at times refer to God as a jealous God? That God is jealous for the heart of his people? That the love of God is so strong, it will not look over our sinful flirtation with the abominations of the land. Rather, God's love for us is so jealous that rather than simply look over it, He'll snatch us away from it. God will not share. Catches my attention and probably yours that there have been and will be more weddings this spring, other weddings to come this summer. Let me engage in a moment of folly. Who stands there on their wedding day planning to share their spouse with someone else? No one. Who gets married planning to get divorced? No one. Who gets married without a certain sort of proper jealousy for the heart, for the mind, for the soul, for the body of the one they are about to marry? And if it is fitting for us to have a proper holy jealousy and not be willing to share our spouse with another, how much more is God holy and right in his jealousy toward the heart of his people. But here, once again, is Israel cheating on God with the abominations of the land. And Ezra is rightly appalled. We should be too. Uh, There should be times when we grieve, deeply grieve, beloved, not simply over our own sins, but even over the sins of others. But such grief leads to action, and in this chapter, intercession, which brings us to our final point, Ezra's plea for God's mercy. What shall we say to all these things? It's almost a little nauseating to see Israel back at it again. This is, in a certain sense, Ezra's opening question here in this final section, beginning at verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? You can almost sense he's he's scratching his head and I guess what little hair is left on top of it, wondering, now what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? 
What's going to fix this? What will God do? He who is not only jealous for the heart of his people, but righteous, justice, and just and holy in all of his ways. Ezra asked this question in a rhetorical sense because he has no answer. There is nothing we can do for ourselves. We have forsaken you. Again, the language of 822, uh, that promise language at the beginning, uh, God's good hand is for Israel who is seeking God. Now that very same language comes back with a bite. God is against us because we have forsaken him. Ezra says it plain. We deserve your wrath. In many ways, this final point that I've titled, Ezra lifts up a plea for God's mercy, you might argue, is incorrectly described. Because technically speaking, in this section, Ezra does not ask God for anything. Rather, he acknowledges their deep sin and guilt before a righteous God. And he does it in a, in a manner of recurring, excuse me, of rehearsing what Israel has done. Not simply at this moment, but seeing it in the context of a broader story. God gave them his word. God gave them the land. God gave them the nations in victorious battle. And God gave them a command. Be mine and mine alone. Save your heart for me. Do not share it with the nations and their abominations. Remain separate from the people. Again, not an ethnic command per se, but a a notably religious one. God wanted the heart of his people for himself. And he knew how easy it would be for the nations to seduce them and lure his people away. So he said, stay away from them from their abominations and their uncleanness. Verse 11 makes it very, very clear, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from one end, from, excuse me, from end to end with their uncleanness. Beloved, you can't miss it. It's almost bothersome to me that others do. But God's concern here is not ethnic. It's spiritual. That's the issue. These are religious terms. This is the reason they were not to intermarry. Yet after all that God had said, and all that God had done, Israel's heart had wandered away, and now great guilt rests upon them. So what does Ezra refer to in a certain sense If he doesn't ask, nonetheless, what is his only hope or plea? It is the gracious character of God himself. Verse 13, he acknowledges what every child should be willing to say to their parents. You have punished us far less than our sin deserves. But what does our sin deserve? What does our sin deserve? What did Israel's sin deserve? What does my sin deserve? And your sin deserve. It's more than just exile. It is death and hell, of which the exile was simply a historical illustration. And Ezra is right. God had been very gracious. He had punished Israel less than her sins deserve. But Ezra also asked certain questions. Shall we break your commandments again and you not notice? Shall we escape your righteous judgment Would you not be righteous if you were angry against your people? 
all these questions, in a certain sense rhetorical, are nonetheless condemning. But verse 15 brings it now to a remarkable close. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. If God were to act according to the character of his justice, and Israel were to receive what her sins deserved, it would be nothing but the full wrath of God. And the same for you and me. So what is their hope? And is there any hope? Well, in a certain sense, uh, the chapter does not end on the best of times. It ends in a certain sense on the worst of times. But the chapter is not the end of the book, nor is it the end of the story. The character of God abounds with holiness, righteousness, and justice, but the character of God also abounds with mercy, grace, and steadfast love. God is just and God is merciful. Ezra, even in recounting the history of what God has done, has recounted that God is full of justice, but also mercy. But he looks to the back, to the back pages, if you will, of what God has already done. The book, however, wants us to lean forward into what God is going to yet do on behalf of not only Israel, but for all his chosen race. Earlier I pointed out that like, well, let me say it differently, that Ezra, in his prayer, does not acknowledge his own sin, for in a certain sense he was not guilty of that particular sin, but he nonetheless identifies himself with the sins of Israel. He was like Moses, a man who gave the word, but who also interceded on behalf of the people. He is like Isaiah, another prophet, who not only gives the word, but acknowledges the sins of the people and bears that burden with them. But these prophets, both Moses and Isaiah, speak of one who will himself not be like Ezra, Moses, or Isaiah. He will be a sinless one. A prophet, priest, and king who will not intermarry, who will not compromise, who will not flirt with the nations, who will not give his heart away, who will not be guilty of missionary marrying or dating. One who, unlike Moses and Isaiah, is sinless, but nonetheless identifies with the sins of his people. And you know of whom I am speaking. It is Jesus the one who is righteous in all of his ways, who has no sin of his own to confess, no guilt of his own of which to be ashamed. Yet what does Jesus do that is very Ezra-like, yet all the more better? He identifies with us in our sin, our shame, and our guilt. Like Ezra, he stands in our place that the harm might come upon him instead of us. He is rightly appalled at our sin as he should be, but he accomplishes what Ezra 9 cannot. It answers the question, what shall we do now? Jesus, beloved, does for you what you cannot do and would not do. Stand in the courtroom of God with the weight of our sins upon him. This is how the full justice and the full mercy of God are perfectly satisfied At the cross of Jesus, as the old hymn goes, where God's mercy and his justice sweetly kiss one another. There we find Jesus as our advocate. There we find Jesus as our representative. There we find Jesus standing in our place. And not only does he do so at the cross in his death, he continues to do so in his life. 
Ezra arguably would have given his life to save Israel, but he could not. Jesus, beloved, has. And even now he continues to do what Ezra only did for a little while. He intercedes on behalf of God's people. Why? Not only because we're sinful, but because God truly wants our hearts. What is it that God wants from you? It's a little piece. Just, just, just the convenient edges, and you keep the rest for yourself. No. Is God interested in sharing your heart with the world? With the things that he de- describes as unclean, abominable, and sinful? And the answer is no. I personally do not believe that the Bible teaches against intermarriage. It does teach against giving our hearts away to that which is displeasing to God because God himself is not interested in a love triangle. He is jealous for our hearts. He is jealous for our souls. And he is jealous for our bodies. As goes the heart, so goes the rest. And so it raises a very important question. Does he have your heart? Here is one today who has given your heart to Christ in faith. Have you become a part of his holy people, a holy race, not because of their visible ethnicity, but because of their spiritual identity in Christ? And if you have, does he have your hearts, or are you missionary dating? Young people, are you dating and marrying only in the Lord? Those who are too young to date, will these words somehow drip down from your mind to your heart and guide you like a light and a lamp so that when you are older you will make good choices rather than ones that break not only your heart but in the end the heart of God. To court the world is to forsake God and to court his judgment. But you are the people of God. And so remember who you are. Precious, beloved, holy in his sight. Beautifully washed and clothed now as the bride of Christ. And he is right to be jealous of your heart. He deserves nothing less. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for that love that will not let us go. A love so great that it caused Jesus, the God-man, to enter into history. One who would not only fully and perfectly obey the law, thought, word, and deed, jot and tittle, every single ounce of it, but would also stand appalled at our sins, but one who could actually do something about it and would do something by giving himself in his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. And we thank you for that love that will not let us go, that even regards us as the bride of Christ. What a strange metaphor for many of us, and yet how true it is. And so we ask that you'd help us not to break your heart, in that we do not mean to suggest that you are like one of us, uh, shallow, weak, or insecure, but you are a God who refers to yourself as jealous for the heart of your people. And so we ask that we would give you our hearts wholly and completely, that we would not flirt with the world, and that we would recognize, O oh Lord, that all that we have in Christ is far more beautiful than all the promises that this land can ever make. We thank you for who we are in him, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue in faithfulness before you because of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.